This morning we pick back up in Acts 8 as we continue on. I just wanted to say a couple of things. If you're new or uh, even if you're not new, um, typically we're on a teaching team rotation and our t- teaching team are teaching pastors of uh, Rob Sweet and Lloyd Shadrach are, are kind of going back and forth between Brentwood and Franklin. And uh, just kind of an anomaly with, with how he hit with the schedule, Lloyd took a much-needed vacation. He actually went to Hawaii, so don't feel too bad for him. Um, and then uh, just with the, the rotation, and, and Rob needed to be up with Nashville, um, that's why it's been Eric back-to-back. And I know many of you are excited about that, but I just wanted to... Um, <laughs> hey, I don't know why you're laughing. It should have been, it should have been clapping rather than laughing, but um, as an executive... <laughs> Uh, as an executive pastor, I only, I only teach six to, six to eight times a year, um, and so it, it's kind of an anomaly. So uh, stay with us if you're a guest. Uh, our teaching pastors will be back next week, um, but excited to, to do this this morning and teach. Um, one thing that I was really struck with as, as we read Acts 8, 1 through 8, um, and I think this is true, and, and I, just had to, I just had to pause when I was reading that, because isn't it easy just to read and just go to like interpretation or like, what does this mean for me? You know, we just kind of just like skip over. But did you, did you hear the words that were being said in the first couple verses? There's a great persecution that happened. Stephen was stoned and then they buried him. Uh, Then Saul goes in and he's ripping people out of their houses. Then people are being displaced out of their city that they've, that they've grown up in. I mean, there is a lot of pain. I don't know if you could put more pain in two verses than what we just read. And sometimes it's easy for us to lose the humanity of the scriptures, that this happened in a real time, in a real place, to real people. And so that's sobering for us to think about that we're not disconnected from these people. Like they experience some of the same things that we experience in pain and suffering. And so we have a lot to, to learn uh, as, we, as we look at this. And so I was just struck with this um, for a couple different reasons. I mean, the text says there's a great persecution. Saul's leading this and he's, he's ravaging against the church. There's a, a leader of the church who dies. They're tearing people out of their houses. I mean, there's a displacement that happens here because the church ends up getting scattered. Just as uh, this week as a staff team, we were, we were looking at some of the, um, at the data points of what they're talking about with Nashville and how many people are moving in and wh- uh, where they're coming from and the ages and all sorts of different things. And Nashville, as we all know, is rapidly changing. And there's a lot of people who are, are coming here who didn't grow up here. In fact, uh, it's, it's such a rarity to meet someone who's from Franklin. If someone says that they're born and raised in Franklin. Don't you look at them like they're a unicorn? Anybody? Like, I mean, I'm just like, wow, you still exist. Like, you're still here. I mean, all of us, I mean, most of us are transplants to this area. I mean, if I just like asked who is born and raised in Franklin, Tennessee, let's just see a show of hands. We have some unicorns and they're all sitting together. <laughs> Do you see that? The unicorns travel in a pack. So just so you know... That was like research data we just saw. They stick together. They know they're kind, you know. It's, but like that, so what, what's interesting about that, now think about that, the implications of that. How many people are here who don't have their family system here with them? 
So whether you chose, whether you chose to move here or not, like your family, your support system, you know, those type of things aren't here with you. So it, it brought some interesting things of, of what we're seeing in this passage of the churches being scattered to all these different regions. Um, you're, you left a place where you knew, were known and you knew the systems, you knew kind of the, the way around and all these things and everything's new now. But then there's also an opportunity for us as a church to be a family of faith to people who don't have families. Isn't that an interesting, unique thing that Nashville is actually starting, that we can actually live out? What does it mean to be a family together when maybe your family isn't here? And so there, there's a couple of things in that. But one thing I, I was thinking about was, is the church is being scattered. And if we, if we look at the humanity of this, that these people are being uprooted from probably where they were born and raised and now they're being scattered. Now they're refugees to these different uh, regions around Jerusalem. So if you think about that, the, the church and the people of the, of the church are being uprooted and then scattered. And there's some, there's some loss there. And I was thinking about uh, us as our church and, and thinking about how many people uh, you guys moved here. Or maybe you were displaced because you were fired or you, you, you had to move, or maybe even if you just chose to move here, there is a loss that uh, we need to mourn when we move from a place, when we move from a place that's familiar to a place that's unfamiliar, a starting over. Um, I talk with people all the time about if, you, if you're new here, you know, it's really two years until you really start to feel like this is, this is home. For some of us, it's longer. But there's also a piece in this text where when we talk about displacement, <clears throat> and we talk about being displaced, I want to just identify a couple of things. Um, there's some pain and there's some loss uh, in that, of being, being displaced. And there's a, there's a couple of things that, that can displace you, and we're going to talk about that a little bit longer. But I remember uh, I, was, I was serving as a, as a student pastor in Michigan, in Lansing, and it was the day after Easter, and my, bo- and my boss comes in, uh, and, he, and he sits me down, and out of the blue, like, I was, I was fired. And I just remember, I don't know if you've, if you've ever been fired before or lost a job. I mean, it is, just one of the, it is just one of the hardest things. I mean, there's just, it just takes the wind out of your lungs. Um, you feel lost. You feel disoriented. You, you feel a little bit of shame of, like, how am I going to talk about this with my spouse? I mean, there's, there's all sorts of things. And we went from living in Lansing, Michigan— to being then what I call displaced down in Tuscaloosa, Alabama, which is a huge cultural shift. And I remember, I just remember uh, us just, just thinking um, and, and thinking about we're going to be heading to Tuscaloosa and thinking, okay, God um, is going to do something with this. Like he's not going to waste the pain of this. Like there's going to be something that we're going to learn. There's going to be something that's going to happen to us uh, in Tuscaloosa. And we want to be open to this. But I, I just remember that. And then the, the, other, the other thing that I would say is, too, is that um, when I started thinking about just loss and being displaced and, and started putting myself uh, in their shoes, I, my, my mind went to 2 Corinthians 1, 3 through 4. So if you have your, if you have your Bible, I just want to point this out to you because it's one of, those, one of those verses that I think you should memorize, that it should be kind of on the tip of your tongue. But 2 Corinthians 1, 3 through 4 is really going to set up the heartbeat of this passage, of where we're going to head as a church this morning, of what I hope that God does in our midst, of 
Because you see a great pain, a displacement that happens in the early part of this text. And then in verse 8, it says, but there is great rejoicing and great joy. And so there's something that happens from great pain to great joy that I think that we can get our hands around this morning. But verse 3 in 2 Corinthians says, Blessed be the God of the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ and the Father of mercies and the God of all comfort, who comforts us in our affliction, and there's this key word, so that we will be able to comfort those who are in any affliction with the comfort which we ourselves are comforted by. So do you see this? That the, when we actually admit that there's pain, that there's loss, that there's hurting, we come to who for comfort? We come to God, the God of all comfort, to receive comfort from God as he walks with us in this. But then it says, so that. So it's not just so you can receive comfort, so that you can have this comfort. It's what? So that there's a purpose in it, so that you can then do what? Bring comfort to others as they are facing affliction and suffering. Now, here's, here's the thing I just want to make really, really clear. This is something that I hope that we this morning will be able to grab around, be able to put some, some tangibles around in this. Because Melissa and I, um, this is last week, we are, we're uh, sharing our story uh, at Reengage, this 17-week uh, deal that we do to enrich marriages. And we were sharing our story and we, we just walk into it and we say, hey, no holds bar. We're just going to be vulnerable and transparent because here's the reason why is God does not waste the pain that he's taken us through, the healing that he's brought us through. We actually want to be open and share what God has done so that you actually experience and actually have a redemptive path out of this. Now, the same is true for all of us. This, I think this is just, we just need to understand this. The very things that we want to hide that might be dark spots in your life, the thing that, things that have happened to you, painful moments in your story, things of loss, things of displacement, the very thing that you want to hide that you don't want other people to know about or you don't openly share is the very thing that might actually lead someone to healing and freedom that you can actually guide them to. Let me just share a couple examples of how I've seen this. I have seen people who have wrestled with struggles or sins or things like that that they're wrestling with that they, they've experienced freedom from as they've walked with God and processed through those things. And here's what they could have done. They could have just been like, oh, I'm experiencing freedom from this. But what they've chosen to done is said, no, like I was addicted to alcohol, to pornography, to those type of things. And now I want to tell you what God has done in my life. Instead of it being a shameful thing where they are locked up in the past, they actually help other people and share a redemptive path out of that. I've seen people who have, have, have gone through things, terrible things that have happened to them of, of being molested or being sexually abused. And what, what Satan wanted to keep in the dark, to keep in, in the past, to keep a, a, the accuser saying, no, it was because of you, it was your fault, or, or any of those type of things. When they work through the lies, when they work through the loss, when they work through the pain, they actually said, God comforted me so that I can now be someone who can bring redemption and comfort to others. And they now are advocates to help people because they understand they've been there. And they now become part of redemptive path for other people. And there is great beauty in that. 
And so for us, what does that look like this morning? I want to put some tangibles around that. So as we work through this text, I think there's something that um, what, what Satan meant for a dark day in the church, you're going to see becomes a place of rejoicing. And I think that's true of our stories as well if we walk with God in this. Let me pray and then we'll just dive into uh, exposing this text and walking through these eight verses. Father, I pray that as we see uh, the humanity in this text, as we see the, the loss and the pain, I pray that we as your people would identify, that we would be able to see a redemptive way forward of some of us being displaced by great pain or loss, but we uh, can walk with you. We can see where we can actually bring to rejoicing and a great joy for others that there is a redemptive path that you have for each one of us. So God, I pray this for us. Pray this for us as a people and the joy that it can bring to others as we acknowledge this in your name. Amen. So last week, let me just recap a little bit of the three main themes that we want to be about as a church that we kind of pulled out of the DNA of the church, that the church in Acts was dependent on the Spirit and on prayer. They were devoted to one another as a community of faith and that they were devoted to making disciples. And that's what we want to be about as well. When it talks about in the first verse, it talks about that there is, um, there's a death that just happened, that, that Saul was in agreement with putting him to death. The, the him there, we have to go back to chapter 7, is actually Stephen. So in chapter 6, you remember that there's this, um, they, they need to distribute the food in, to the uh, Hellenistic Jews. And so they, they select some men to be able to, to share some leadership and distribute. And Stephen is one of those who's elevated, a man full of the Holy Spirit, full of wisdom. He's elevated to this position and then he's, he's arrested, uh, preaching the gospel, and then he begins to proclaim the good news of Jesus, and it so angers the religious leaders that they decide to put him to death. Now, up to this point, they've just been imprisoning people or have just been saying, hey, stop doing this. So this is a turning point here. The dominoes start to fall, where Stephen now becomes the first martyr of the church, um, that's recorded here. And now it goes in from just kind of uh, trying to keep it at bay to a full-on persecution that ends up happening. Let's look at verse 1 together. Let's read this. Uh, Saul was in hearty agreement with putting him to death. And on that day, a great persecution began against the church in Jerusalem. And they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea, Samaria, except the apostles. So this is, this is where it starts to become an official persecution, systematic, violent persecution of the church. This isn't yet Roman persecution. This is the Jewish religious leaders persecuting. And it's going to lead to literal displacement of the church. Because of fear of imprisonment or death, the, these Christians start fleeing to these other regions. Let's look at verse 2 and 3. Now some devout men buried Stephen and made loud lamentation over him. But Saul began ravaging the church, entering house to house, and dragging off men and women, and he would put them in prison. Now, it's hard to imagine uh, how terrifying that would be, that, that someone would just bust in and then start pulling people out and imprisoning. Now, it says that they imprison men and women. Now, now think about just, the, just the, the tangibles of how the church would have to cope with some of these things. Where are the kids? Um, the church just has to start taking care of each other's kids. I mean, just the imprisonment, the, 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 you, can just, you can see the, the word ravaging here. It's the same kind of uh, word that's used in the Old Testament 
um, and that it describes in, in, in Psalm it, it, uh, 80, at verse 13, it describes a, a boar going through a vineyard. That's what Saul was like. He was, he was just, he was nuts. I mean, he was insane going after, he was filled uh, with uh, anger and going after the church. Now, what's interesting here is this is the same person who will one day become Paul, who will become the great evangelist of the church, who writes most of the New Testament. And so there's going to be a great conversion that we're going to read about later in Acts. But at this point, uh, it's not just that he's going against the church. What is he doing? He is actually thinking that he's doing this in the name of God. He is doing it uh, in his mind for God, like to honor God. He's zealous for the law. He's zealous for God. And so he's, he's doing this um, because he's trying to get rid of uh, the heretics in this. There's so much irony here is that we see Paul is ripping people out and putting them where? In prison. Many of the books of the New Testament that you're going you're gonna to read, is, where is Paul? In prison. Now, isn't that just I- ironic? I'm sure Paul at the end of his life was like, man, good one, God. You know, you, got, you know, but like you see this, it's like so much irony in that. And I, and I want us just to be, again, just to be mindful that persecution um, it's hard for us to identify with what we're seeing here, but this type of thing happens all around the world still. Like where we, like where we just came in this morning, like you just drove here, you just kind of got out of your car, you're visible, you're like, I don't care who sees me, you know. That is not true of many, many Christians around the world. Um, you hear reports in India, in China, um, in, in Africa. There's just so many different places where where uh, people are being displaced in the same type of way. Um, and so we need to be mindful of that. We need to be praying um, for our brothers and sisters uh, around the world who are being displaced, who are refugees uh, in, in many ways like this. Um, verse 4. So therefore they had been scattered, those who had been scattered went about preaching the word. Now, this is a remarkable verse, and I want us to unpack this in, in, in kind of two different ways. Um, this is, these eight verses are so rich and so full. It made me think about um, just the beauty and the depth of Scripture. I mean, I've been, I've been a, a pastor for a while, but like every time I, I go into it, and, I, and I, the more deeply I look, I just see the beauty of the depth and all the connections from the Old Testament, the New Testament, and the depth of the language and, and all of these things that we're going to see. Um, God is, is so wise and, and so and it's, it's, it's just unbelievable what we're going to see in this. So the therefore is a because of. So it's a cause and effect. There's a great and terrible persecution. But then what's the effect of that? The church is scattered, right? So we see um, the displacement of Jesus followers in this. Uh, Eugene Peterson, when he, when he wrote the message, he paraphrased this and he says, forced to leave home base, the followers of Jesus became missionaries, and wherever they were scattered, they preached the message about Jesus. Now, up to this point, we've only read of the people who were proclaiming the gospel, the good news of Jesus. Who were they? They were the leaders of the church, right? They're the apostles or the leaders of the church. Now, because of the scattering, who does it say was preaching the good news of Jesus? The church the people who were scattered. But who remained back in Jerusalem? The apostles. So who's doing the preaching now? Everyday, ordinary believers like you and me. 
they are the ones who are proclaiming this message. And so Paul, isn't, and Saul, isn't this interesting? He's persecuting the church to try to stop the message of the gospel going forth. And because of the persecution, it scatters the church. And now instead of just 12 people proclaiming the good news of Jesus and, and preaching the word, how many are we doing now? Like, we're talking about thousands. And so what Saul meant to contain the gospel is actually unleashing the gospel. And so he talks about it being scattered. So in, instead of it being centralized, now it's being um, scattered. It comes from this Greek word, uh, this verb, sparrow, which means to sow a seed or scatter a seed. So remember Jesus' parable. There's in Mark 4, he says, a farmer went out to sow seed, to scatter the seed. And as he was scattering the seed, same verb that's used here to scatter the seed, some fell on the rocky road, some fell on the thorns, and some fell on good soil. Do you remember that parable when Jesus was talking about? This is becoming a reality in our text this morning. So the seed was talked about as the word of God, which was Jesus was talking about in the parable. And so as the church, Acts 8, 4, as we read that they scattered the word, scattered the seed, the good news of the gospel, they're, they're doing exactly what Jesus was talking about this. Now, God is taking something intended for evil, and he is using it for his purposes. He's redeeming what was broken and what was causing pain. He's redeeming this. Now, Warren Worsby says this, if the message of the seed is the word of God, then persecution is the wind that is spreading the seed out. Now, this is the, this is the big part. Where were they scattered? So it says that they, they were scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria. So let's turn back in uh, and flip back to Acts 1. And this is, again, this is, this is the unpacking of what Jesus was talking about would happen. Let's go back to Acts 1.8. It says this, But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you shall be my witnesses both in Jerusalem... And in all Judea and Samaria and to the remotest parts of the earth. So what is happening here is what Jesus was talking about in Acts 1.8. That there's a scattering and now they're going out. They're going to where, where Jesus was saying that they need to take the gospel. So this is exactly where they talked about it. Now there's two parts of this geographic outline in the book of Acts. I want to show you this map. Um, So we get this kind of sense. This is Jerusalem. This is the epicenter of where it was. Then it goes to Judea and then Samaria. So then, so you see that the gospel is going out. It's getting broader. Jerusalem is a small green part. And then it goes out to Judea and then out to the region of Samaria. Now, this is where this text starts to get really, really interesting. When it says that uh, in verse 5 that Philip went down to the city, well, what he means by this, everything from the place of Jerusalem is down because of the elevation. So when they're talking about it, they're talking about it down in the sense of elevation. But now this is the, this is the really fascinating part about this verse. Where did Philip go and spread the good news? Samaria. We have to unpack the, the level of um, 
what this means that the gospel was now being proclaimed in Samaria. This is a bold move um, by Philip. It's breaking a major cultural taboo here. Um, this, is a, this is a people group. Jews did not associate with the Samaritans. So I'm going to give you a little history. In 900 BC, Israel broke into two nations. You had the northern kingdom, and then you had the southern kingdom. Now, the northern kingdom made Samaria its capital. So in Samaria, in the northern kingdom, think about the the split. The northern kingdom, Samaria is the capital. In 722 BC, uh, the Assyrian Empire comes in, and they wipe out the northern kingdom. And as they start to repopulate, they, they start to intermarry the Jews and the Assyrians. And so now there's hostility between the southern kingdom and the northern kingdom, because now you have Jews that are, are kind of what they're calling half-breeds, right? They're, they're intermarrying with the Assyrians. But not just that, there's even more division, because then the Samaritans will build a rival temple, and they'll say that this is where to worship. And then they'll reject the rest of the Old Testament scriptures and just have the first five as their, as their book, as the, the five books of the, of the Pentateuch. So the Hebrews, they despise Samaritans for, for several reasons. But the hostility, I don't even think that we can understand how much disdain and how much devaluing they would have for Samaritans. I mean, to, to say they hated them um, would be an understatement. There was, there was a couple of different commentaries that I was reading, and they would actually pray that, um, that God would not remember the Samaritans, um, that they would be punished and, and endure uh, his wrath. I mean, they, they had disdain, they had hatred uh, for one another. It went both ways. So now Philip he is stepping into this hostile territory, this racial tension that's happening here. I mean, the Samaritans, uh, by all the, the, the Jew standards, were less than human. I mean, that's how they would talk about them. Um, they, would, they would talk about their value as, as less than human. And so Philip is stepping across this thousand-year-old cultural divide, and he is saying the gospel is for you. This is a big deal. This is a huge deal. But Philip is a follower of Jesus, and Jesus modeled this before. John 4. Do you remember in John 4, Jesus goes to the well, and this woman from Samaria, the Samaritan, comes up, and they start having this interaction. And it wasn't just outlandish that Jesus was talking to this woman, is that she was a Samaritan woman. And you'll remember in this passage, if you're familiar with it, she talks about, you guys worship here, and we worship on this mountain. And he he begins to, to talk to her about this. And so Philip is a follower of Jesus, and he is literally following in Jesus' footsteps of bringing the good news to the Samaritans. And the reason why this is such a big deal is because of the rest of the book of Acts, we're going to see the gospel go from Jerusalem, then it goes to Samaria, and as it starts to move out, then it's going to reach the Gentiles, and the the church is going to have to start dealing with, okay, Whoa, whoa, whoa. Now we're dealing with people who didn't grow up Jewish, who didn't follow the law. Okay, now we're going to have to understand and and determine, do we need to uh, cause, do they need to be circumcised to be a Jesus follower? They're going to have to wrestle with all of these implications because the gospel is beginning to expand just as Jesus said it would. You'll be my witnesses in these different places, the remotest parts of the world. And so 
where, we, where they wanted to keep it, it was just in Jerusalem, persecution actually started to scatter the word of God. And as the word of God started to scatter, people began to respond and it got bigger and bigger and bigger. And so we'll see the implications of this. So the gospel, the good news of Jesus, is reconciling two groups of people who were enemies. Now this is, this is, this is very huge. In Samaria now, you are going to have uh, people who are beginning to become uh, followers of Jesus, who are going to trust the gospel, and there's going to be great rejoicing about this. But now the church is actually forming, now they're brothers and sisters who once were enemies, who once looked at each other as less than human and hatred for another. Now they're going to be the church together. The Spirit of God, anytime that from now on in the book of Acts, we say that there, see that there was great unity, that is a work of the Spirit bringing people together because racism is always something that happens in our hearts where we devalue someone who says is created in the image of God. We're going to look for ways to devalue others to make ourselves appear better. That is, that's essentially what racism is because without the gospel and security and identity coming from the gospel, you have to compare and contrast yourself against others. And so you're naturally going to look at differences to devalue other people. And so this is where the gospel informs us of how do we deal with racial tensions? How do we deal? Well, we just have to first and foremost say this. The gospel is for all people. Period. And so when we start to understand that, there's implications for us when we see people being devalued and and being treated differently than others, then we have to come in with the gospel and say, no, the gospel actually reconciles enemies. The gospel actually brings peace to this. The gospel actually says you have value. John Stott gives this great word in what is happening here in Acts it says the gospel had been welcomed by the Samaritans, but would the Samaritans be welcomed by the Jews? That is the question. Or would they be second-class citizenship? Later, the same thing will happen when the gospel goes to the Gentiles. In this transition from the old covenant to the new, the gospel is spreading from Jerusalem to the ends of the earth. Okay, let's look at verse 6 and 7. The crowds, now that the gospel has gone to, you know, Philip is scattering the gospel as people are being scattered. In verse 6, the crowds with one accord were giving attention to what was said by Philip. And as they heard and saw the signs which he was performing, for in the case of many who had unclean spirits, they were coming out of them and shouting with a loud voice. And many who had been paralyzed and lamed were healed." So the crowds in Samaria are coming to the message and receiving and paying attention, and they're receiving the message of the gospel. And as they're receiving, they're being healed, not just physically, but being healed spiritually. And so we see this. Whose ministry does this remind you of? In Jerusalem, the religious leaders of the day are hardening in their hearts and opposing the good news of Jesus and the message. Remember when Jesus is doing that? And then the sinners and the tax collectors and those who know they're in need, what are they doing in Jesus's ministry? They're coming near. We see the same thing happening in Samaria. And so as it's going out, uh, miracles in the New Testament, when we see that, 
We're actually seeing an authentication of the message. So you have the message of God, the good news of Jesus, the message of God, but then you also have an authenticating of the message and and proving that this is true. This is what we're talking about, and we're going to show you, and that's why it's called a sign. So what is happening is a sign to them. Now here's the part where I think is the pinnacle of these eight verses. Look at verse eight. And there was much rejoicing in the city. So there's there's another therefore, cause and effect. The result of Philip and others being scattered and displaced leads to what? Rejoicing. There's great rejoicing in this city. Now joy is a sub-theme that we see in Acts. Everywhere the gospel goes, joy accompanies it. There's a lot of joy in the early church as they're devoting to one another, as they're meeting each other's needs, as they're providing for one another. In Acts 8, we see the rejoicing in Samaria. Chapter 13, we're going to see the gospel goes to the Gentiles, and it says that there's much joy that end up seeing that there's good news for them too. The Ethiopian eunuch was filled with joy. The Roman, Roman prison guard was filled with joy and many others. So joy is this ultimate um, thing that ends up happening when people hear and receive and believe the good news of Jesus. But there's also good news. When the good news is shared, there's also joy for the person who's sharing it. It's not just for the person who's received, because I have to believe that when Philip was uh, in the city and he sees these people uh, accepting and coming to uh, hear and receive the gospel message, that he's filled with joy because he's being used with God. The thing that displaced him to this place wasn't in vain. He's actually seeing it play out. He's actually seeing redemption play out. And he's filled with joy in this. So here's where I want to go in this last part, the application of this. So what? How do we, how do we apply this? What does this mean for us? Well, I just want to start with this. I think one of the deepest desires of our human experience, of the human heart, is joy. Joy is a sense of happiness that's being rooted in something enduring. So not, not just a sense of, of chasing something to make us happy or to fill us, but it's something that's enduring. It's something that's lasting. It's where our meaning and purpose comes from. When we uh, find that, we have great joy. That my life counts for something. That there's this purpose. That there's this meaning beyond just me. And we see this of finding people finding joy. So how do unbelievers find joy in Acts? The scattering of the word. They hear the message they receive the message, and there's great joy. How will people in our context, in our city, experience great joy? When we scatter the message of God to our community, and they receive it, they'll experience joy. So there's this, there's this um, quote that says, um, preach the gospel at all times and use words when necessary. Have you heard that? Okay, disregard it because it's actually false. Why is that false? I understand the heart in that is to like love people and, you know, with your actions, you know, be a, be a neighbor who loves, loves neighbors, right? Like that's great. Do that. But also proclaim the gospel. How do people come to faith? It's through hearing the good news of Jesus, that they receive what they have heard, that we actually need to be about proclaiming the good news of Jesus, 
that we, when we proclaim it, people receive it, we actually participate in God redeeming people and, and bringing great joy in that. And so we'll, we'll unpack that a little bit. So how do believers find joy in Acts? By being used by God, by being witnesses, by being part of something that's bigger than themselves, by participating in the work that God is doing in reconciling lost people to himself, of redeeming painful things. So God's desire is for us to experience the joy of being used by him and being part of his mission and participating in it and seeing restoration of broken things and reconciling. And so here's, here's one way I, I want us to think about this is that when we come together on Sunday mornings, we're gathered together. So think about gathering together, but it's Saturday through Sunday, we're scattered. We're gathered to scatter. We're gathered to scatter. Can you say that with me? We're gathered to scatter. Now, here's where I want you just to, to implement this. The air we're breathing, you did not create. God is sustaining us. We're being sustained by something outside of us, right? And so what I, what I want us to do is I want you to breathe in, take a big, deep breath, and then breathe out. The same, in the same way, we're gathering, we're breathing in the grace of God. We're also stewards of his grace in our daily lives. So when we breathe in God's grace, when we experience God's grace, we're always meant to steward God's grace to those around us. It goes back to second, second, um, Corinthians 1. When we are comforted, we comfort others. It's the same principle. We have received the good news of Jesus, now we scatter the good news of Jesus. We're gathered together as a church to encourage each other, to come alongside one another, but we also go out and scatter the good news of Jesus. We are gathered to scatter. It's a missional idea. Now that's for us as a church corporately. Now here's where I want to get really personal for application for us. Now, the people in this were displaced. I want you to begin thinking about, I give a, a few examples of how I was displaced, of how there's some painful things that happen in, in my life. I want you to think right now, where have I been displaced in my life? Where is something of great pain or loss that has actually caused me to be displaced? So it could be I'm displaced by a loss of job or a financial crisis. I mean, I know people right now who are, are displaced, um, got the diagnosis of cancer, and now you're being displaced into places that you normally would not have gone. You're being displaced to cancer wards and hospitals and doctor's offices and sitting next to people who you normally would not have sit next to. I know people right now have been displaced re, uh, relationally um, through relational struggle, uh, through divorce, through painful things with their, their children. Now, people who have been displaced because of deep uh, grief of losing a loved one, and now they're having to reorient their lives, they're, they're being displaced. In each case, we're invited to be witnesses of Christ in a new and strange place that we did not chart ourselves. Our lives get displaced. Our lives get uprooted, and now we're put in this place and I remember uh, some words that have stuck with me all these years um, that my father-in-law spoke to me when I was uh, let go. 
uh, and fired in that moment, he said, God doesn't waste pain. And I believe that. I believe that that is true. Uh, What God can do in us, he will do through us. And so we're displaced where we normally wouldn't go. Suffering uproots us, but is producing a joy if we let it. Now, our Heavenly Father doesn't scatter us without purpose. And scattering of the people, there's a purpose there. And so there's one day when we talk about, there's one day when the scattering will no longer happen, where we be together, the people of God gathered together, the scattering will be complete, the joy will be complete. But in this world, we will be displaced. And I think the reason why verse 8 stuck out to me so much is because you see such pain and loss and displacement in the first few verses. But then in just six more verses, what do you see? Rejoicing. And I want to come back to 2 Corinthians 1 and just read it for us again. And almost in a way where you can say, God, what I'm experiencing, maybe you're in a season right now where you feel like you're being displaced where you feel like the loss, the mourning, the unknown, you have no idea what God is doing in the midst. It just feels, you feel at a loss. But here's where I want to read this over us this morning. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and the God of all comfort, who comforts us in all of our affliction, so that we will be able to comfort those who are in any affliction with the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted by God. So here's what I want to say. When we look at suffering, we have to begin looking at it in a different way. There is a purpose that is happening that is forming and shaping us here. And so this morning, I just want to say the good news of Jesus is it's missional in itself. The Father sends the Son, the Son sends the Spirit, and the Spirit sends the church. And so this morning, I want us as a church to think about, God, what are you doing in me? And where are you displacing me in my work, um, in in, in my neighborhood? Why have you put me in these certain places? It's to be a witness. It's to scatter It's to proclaim there is hope, there is a message, even in the midst of suffering. And I can't think of a better way for us to actually implement this and actually bring this home than for us to tangibly see this expressed. And so I want to, I want to do, take the Lord's table this morning. And so those of you who are, are going to be distributing the Lord's table, you can, you can come forward, have the band come up. But here's, we're going to do this in a different way. Usually we pass trays, but I'm going to have us where, where you're actually going to come. Um, there's going to be f- uh, four couples up here, and I'm going to have you come and receive um, the bread and, and the juice. And, and when we receive this, they're going to say to you, his body broken for you and his blood shed for you. Because I want to unpack the good news just a little bit of us, even in the midst of suffering. Because we can look at suffering and say, what is, it it feels so uh, pointless. It feels so empty. But when we look at the suffering of Jesus, we see that we have a God who doesn't leave us, who doesn't not care for us, but who came and suffered. We have a God who can identify with us. 
We have a God who mourns with us. We have a God who sees us and he cares with us. We have the spirit in us and his people reminding us that they, God is doing something. He's not wasting pain, that this cancer is not meaningless, that this divorce was not meaningless, that this loss of our job was not meaningless, that this crisis that we're facing was not meaningless. It's producing in something that we would not be able to produce in ourselves and it's displacing us to places we normally would not go. Don't let the evil one take your seed. Scatter the hope. Because we have a God of all comfort and you need to be reminded, we need to be reminded this morning that we are with the people of God to gather together, to be encouraged together, to be reminded that we have a Savior who does not just look away from us and and say, deal with that. I don't know what it's like to suffer. No, we have a mediator. We have someone who comes alongside of us who suffered like we would suffer. And he says, come to me, all who are weary all who are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. And when we give God our pain and we say, God, would you comfort us in our affliction? He begins to do a healing work. He begins to take us to places where we normally would not have gone. And then we get to be the people who receive the comfort from the God of all comfort. And we get to be the people who scatter that comfort to produce great joy in others that they would know that they are not alone, that there is a God who loves them, that there is a God who sees them, that there is a God who cares for them. And so when we take the Lord's table, when we say his body broken for you, we mean it. His body was broken for you and his blood was shed for you. And that produces a hope and that produces a joy that we can take in this moment and scatter to the world who needs hope, who needs joy. Looking for things apart from God will never produce joy. But we say we have a savior who came to rescue us and we have hope. We have the seed of hope that we can scatter as a church. So I'm going to have you guys come and take your places. And when you're ready, I want you to come up. And if you've placed your faith and trust in Christ, we want you to receive this morning. And we want you to receive the words that they will speak to you. Look them in their eyes and receive an encouragement from your brothers and sisters that this message is for you. So come when you're ready. You can come up the middle aisle or you can come down the side aisles. And then we'll sing and proclaim together.